Section 38 of the United States. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Piotr Nater. The World's Story, Volume 12, The United States. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 38. How Feudalism Came to New Netherland, 1630. By William Elliot Griffiths. We have seen that Dutch colonists for New Netherland were difficult to secure, and that artificial stimulus to emigration was needed. From England good men were driven out by spiritual tyranny, but in Holland conscience was free and the country well off. The ordinary lures, gold, fish, furs, freedom to worship God, which led Spaniards, Frenchmen, some Dutchmen, and many Englishmen beyond sea, did not suffice for the men of the Republic. So, quote-unquote, John Company hit upon a new device, which was nothing less than a reversion to feudalism. In the Netherlands, the three classes of society were nobles, burghers or citizens, and the common people. The nobles, who lived mostly in the country, were landowners and often patroons, that is, patrons or manor lords of vast estates. But the burghers, who governed the cities, formed the aristocracy and had great powers. The consuming ambition of the merchants, who were gaining wealth rapidly, was to own land, and thus be like the nobles. This desire could not well be gratified in a small country like Holland. Here the earth had to be rescued by pump, spade, and dike from under the jealous waters, and held only through sleepless vigilance. In America land was plentiful and cheap. It was this coveted prize that was a lure. By securing and owning great manors in New Netherland, plain burghers might become landed proprietors and rank as nobles. So, with the threefold idea of enlarging their fortunes, becoming patrons, and developing New Netherland, the directors of the Dutch West India Company in 1630 enlarged their plans. Reserving Manhattan to the corporation, they issued the charter of quote-unquote, privileges and exemptions. This allowed a private person to take up stretches of land sixteen miles long, facing a navigable river, or eighteen miles on either side of one, and extending as far back in the country as might be. Such a promoter, if he planted a colony of at least fifty adults within four years, was a patron on a manor, and had feudal rights over colonists. During their decade of bonded service, the tenants could not leave their master, and if they did so, they were to be treated as runaways, and could be arrested. The patroons, though free to trade, must pay at Manhattan five percent duty on their cargoes. Here was a selfish scheme for the enrichment of a few monopolists. It was utterly opposed to the spirit of freedom-loving Holland. The company's methods were already bad enough, as the immigrants on Manhattan, for example, could not own land in fee simple, but were tenants at will. This new scheme simply added another and a rival sovereignty. It was bound to be the source of unnumbered troubles, causing frequent conflicts of jurisdiction between the agents of the company and the patroons, besides anger and irritation among tenants who were subjected to quote unquote, the double pressure of feudal exaction and mercantile monopoly. The system, which was a step backwards, was hated from the first by all self-respecting free settlers. Colonists who settled under patroon and manor were free of all taxes for ten years. They were not freemen, but semi-serfs. The patroon system was one of many old-world ideas that would not work in America. 
In favour of this semi-feudalism, probably suggested by French methods in Canada, it may be said, however, that in all cases above the value of fifty guilders, the tenants on the manors had the right of appeal. Independent farmers, as well as patroons and manor tenants, after discharging their obligations, were encouraged to seek homesteads. Other benefits in the Charter of Exemptions were in favour of the Indians, and of religion and morals, so that, despite objectionable features in the new plan of colonization, there was hope of a large emigration from Patria. As a matter of fact, however, only one of the manors, that of Van Rensselaer, ever became a success. This result was due as much to the high character of the people settling it as to that of the Van Rensselaers, high as this was. The men who devised this feudal scheme were among the first to take advantage of it. So far forward were Messieurs Hodden and Blomert that even before the adoption of the charter in Holland they had bought through their agent a manor, that is a riederhut or knight's estate, on Delaware Bay. The Indians, by agreement made with pen and ink, were paid for a tract of land thirty-two miles long, from Cape Henlopen to the mouth of the river. This was the first European land title written within the state of Delaware. Hilian van Rensselaer bought from the Indians, first through Captain Kroll and later through Hilly's Houset, the land which is now the larger part of the counties of Albany and Rensselaer in New York, making an estate of about a thousand square miles. Hendrik and Alexander van der Kappelen, two brothers, and one an ancestor of our nation's friend during the War of Independence, bought land of the Navesing and Raritan Indians. Michael Pau, in Latin Pavonius, or Peacock, secured Staten Island, Hoboken, and what is now Jersey City, calling his domain Pavonia. Thus was the land seized, not as in Europe by the might and sword of the border brawler, but by the craft of the pen held by the men in the counting-house. Already in New France, or Canada, the French had set the Dutch the bad example of feudalism, but at its worst the Dutch system was much milder in its features than either the British or the Gallic model. Yet, notwithstanding the advantages offered to poor folks, the whole system of patroons and manors was detestable to a free Dutchman. As matter of fact and history, no Dutch village community was ever founded under the Charter of 1629. End of section 38